Did you know that every major diaper company either financially or vocally supports abortion? If that appalls you and you're looking to support a baby brand that aligns with your pro-life, pro-family views, then every life is your solution. Every life firmly believes that regardless of where someone is from, what they look like, or whether they were planned or unplanned, every baby is a miracle from God worthy of love, protection, and celebration. Every Life offers high-performing, supremely soft, premium diapers and wipes delivered right to your doorstep. Their diapers are crafted without fragrances, dyes, lotions, latex, parabens, or phthalates. And you can feel good knowing that every purchase with Every Life contributes to changing lives through their support of pro-life organizations and pregnancy resource centers. Every Life is not just changing diapers, they're changing lives. Visit everylife.com to learn more. That's everylife.com. And don't forget to use promo code Duffy10 for an exclusive 10% discount on your first order today. Hey, everyone. Welcome to From the Kitchen Table. I'm your host, Sean Duffy, along with my co-host for the podcast, but also my partner in life, Rachel Campos Duffy. That's right. I'm so happy to be back because you know I was sick last week and, and you had... You were so sick you're not talking into the microphone. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I was so sick last week and you filled in, you had uh, Jason Chaffetz fill in for me. Jason and Sean went solo. Rachel yeah. was gone. It, it, was, it was not the, the 24-hour flu. It was like four days of... Uh, yeah, I was sick. Mom was sick. Well, I was sick. And it's so then... They, and, and it's good to be back and then you just, you and Jason just talked shop. It was like... Mm. Uh, old school old, back in the Congress. Old, Old reminiscing about your days like in back the in the room, drinking coffee and just philosophizing. <laughs> <laughs> There's a hot dog machine in there too. There is a hot dog. Machine. All right. Well, I'm so excited to be here because, as you know, this has been. You know, the last few weeks has been a massive news cycle. There's so much going on in the country. But, of course, there's also this war in Ukraine that many people thought would never happen. There were lots of speculation about whether Russia, you know, was just amassing all those troops to scare us and, uh, and uh, you know, get something out of us. But then he actually did invade. And we have not stopped talking about it. And ever since this is this whole thing started brewing, mm-hmm. I've been wanting to talk, been wanting to, to talk to. I have been wanting to talk to Rick Rennell. Rick Rennell. And we <laughs> finally got him. He's the former acting director of national intelligence. The one person probably other than Zelensky and Putin himself that I want to talk to. Oh, maybe Angela Merkel. But I, I'd actually I rather watch. I'd rather watch Rick talk to Angela. So, <laughs> um, so Rick, Rick well, Rennell, welcome, <laughs> welcome to the podcast to the again. Podcast. Sean and Rachel, you know, I feel like I'm a regular now. You are. <laughs> We're going to make you a regular. Um, so Zelensky just talked to Congress. This war doesn't look like it's going as well as the Russians thought. Uh, Zelensky's desperate. He needs the weapons. <laughs> just give us your but lowdown but, but, of what's going on. Yeah, give us the basis. Rick, point. I mean, he came in with a mission, right? He, he wanted to inspire America, number one, to enforce a no-fly zone, which I, it doesn't appear that that's going anywhere. But also he's asking for the MIGs and he's asking for armaments. What was your take on his speech? How effective was he? So, you know, first of all, I, I think we start with, uh, you know, my, my heart is breaking for all of the stories we're seeing in, in Ukraine. I mean, people, just regular people being displaced and their homes destroyed and their livelihoods destroyed. You can't watch this and not have an emotional reaction. But I think that when you have Zelensky speaking to all of the Congress. I watched his speech closely and 
from my perspective, obviously he can't do everything, right? He's got to he's got to pick and choose who the audience is. And it seemed clear to me that the audience was the American people. And what he tried to do is to say, you know, you remember Pearl Harbor, you remember 9/11, you remember, you know, Martin Luther King Jr.'s words of encouragement and vision. And that whole emotionalism was not meant for, I think, legislators, uh, maybe a little bit of it, but but he really decided to speak to the American people. And that's where I think that he didn't do a great job, because if you understand the American people right now, they don't want to go to war. They don't want to be a globalist. They love America first policies. These are popular policies. And if you're going to speak to the American people, then I think you've got to create a discussion as to why Ukraine is different than Iraq and Afghanistan. That's a very interesting point. Go go a little further on that. You know, after 20 years, uh, Americans are tired of war and the cost of war. You look at Mm -hmm. how much it costs for Iraq and Afghanistan. And I think that we have to be a healthy society where we look back and say that was a really high price, too high of a price to just walk away and say little girls got to go to school for a little while. Um, I believe that if if the American media descended upon the Congo, that we would be outraged with the stories of destruction and heartbreak in the Congo. And that can't be our criteria for our foreign policy anymore. I also feel very strongly that, you know, I spent eight years at the U.N. and I know the U.N. programs intimately. We spend, Americans spend billions of dollars. We're the number one funder of the U.N. And yet in this entire tragedy and crisis in Ukraine, we're not even talking about the U.N. Where is the U.N.? Where is their programs? Where's our money that's going there that's supposed to go for these programs? I think that Americans want to see a smarter foreign policy. They want to see a tougher diplomacy before we immediately go to military action. I'm not saying America shouldn't lead uh, because I think we have a moral obligation to lead. But we have slipped into this idea. Official Washington tells us that leading is only through boots on the ground or military reactions. And that's super limiting. And and as a diplomat, somebody who's been at the State Department for 11 years, I've never seen the State Department shoved aside so fast like it was with Ukraine. I mean, there were a whole bunch of diplomacy with muscle options to use, sanctions. Let's remember this. The the Merkel government, and we could do a whole show on Merkelism because I think Merkelism (laughs) made Europe less safe. Mm -hmm. And Merkelism really pulled Germany into this um, Switzerland foreign policy where they just wanted to sell uh, BMWs in Beijing and Tehran and Moscow, and they didn't really care about human rights or the Western-style policies that that we think of with the rule of law. But we have to be very clear that the Trump administration had sanctions on Putin's Russian pipeline. And those sanctions meant that the pipeline wasn't going to be working, the cash was going to be limited. And as soon as Biden came in, Merkel went to Biden and said, drop the sanctions. And because Joe Biden values and maximizes consensus with the Europeans, the Europeans get to veto our policy. And so 
When Merkel asked, Biden responded. He wanted to please the Europeans. The Senate Democrats, the Merkel government and the Biden government all worked together to drop sanctions on the pipeline. And if you remember their excuse was on Nord Stream 2 and remember their excuse was, well, we don't want to piss off Putin and start a war. Right. Well, so, so Rick, let's let's talk about that, because I mean, I think there's I, I want to look I want to look back in a second, but I want to look at the present. And we always Rachel and I talk about this. We need to live in reality, not what, the, the world that we wish we lived in, but the world that we actually live in. And to that point, the American people, um, their heartstrings have been pulled. The media has shown pictures. Yeah. And again, Putin is a thug. He invades um, what appears to be a peaceful nation. Um that's for the most part democratic. Um, you may push back on me on that, but a little bit. I will. Right, I know exactly. <laughs> Ooh, I can't wait for him so, to push but, back on but, that. So, so we, we are. We're talking about missiles. We're talking about drones. We're talking about do MIGs come in or not? The no-fly zone. Rick Grinnell, if he is advising the president, what is the right balance here to give Ukraine the tools to fight? but also doesn't put our young men and women in harm's way in Ukraine? And how do we not inflame uh, Russia and bring us into the conflict? Well, first of all, let's start with a couple of things. Europe is in panic right now. I was just there uh, about six days ago, and I'm going back in a couple of weeks. And the reality is that Europe is very concerned about this war. And part of the America First doctrine is not just bringing our troops home and and putting America first, but it's getting our allies to step up and do more. And I think now is the time for Europe to do more. This is Europe. This is their backyard. Their policy cannot be, where are the Americans? That can't be a policy of Europe. They're very wealthy. Uh, The Germans have a a budget surplus, remember. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think that that there's still a lot more that we can do diplomatically. Um, Anthony Blinken has a plane all to himself. And yet he's in Washington this week. How is that possible? How does he still have a job? Such a great point. We should have diplomacy with muscle and the same crowd. You know, I have to I have to comment on. Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut, who, you know, was so belligerent towards Trump ambassadors who were too tough and mean. Um, and yet, look what we were able to accomplish. Sometimes diplomacy is tough, mm-hmm. Senator Murphy. Sometimes diplomacy is defending America and telling your allies that you have to do more. It's not going to dinner at a fancy place and deciding what's the middle ground. Because if that was just a scientific experiment of, okay, let's go in and you state your position and then we'll meet halfway in the middle, then anyone could do it. Right. But diplomacy is an art. It's all about the messenger and how do you push to represent your side? And and I think that we've mocked tough diplomacy too much. So we've shoved diplomacy aside. We got to remember, Sean, that Ukraine is really the bridge between Russia and the West. It's re- it's not a Western country, so to speak, in all of the forms that we think of the, the West as being. It's heavily uh, inundated with corruption. And they've struggled with leader after leader that has not been able to tackle corruption. Um, and so I, I think what we have to do is remember that Ukraine is supposed to be that bridge between us and, and you know, half the country, maybe not quite half, but 
a large portion of the country is pro-Russia. Right. And has has Russian roots. And so I, I think that we just have to be smarter about and real, more realistic, as you say, about what can be accomplished in Ukraine. I want Americans and American policymakers to understand that we cannot export our form of democracy overseas. We've tried that for 25 years. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Mm -mm. And it's not going to work in Ukraine. And to paint Ukraine as this totally pure pro-West idea that just wants to stand up to, to Russia is, I think, oversimplifying and it's what Hollywood does. And, and we can't do that. We've got to be really smart about what we're up against. But, I but would Rick, say, but on that point, minute, though, I mean, is it fair? I mean, Ukraine does not come at this with clean hands, is your point. But when you compare Ukraine to Russia, obviously Russia's the aggressor. Russia's the ones that are launching missiles into Ukraine, right? I mean, we can we can look at maybe two imperfect actors and go, well, those guys are the bad guys. Putin is the bad yeah. dude, right? I mean, that's... The, and, and absolutely. Moral, uh, morally, Ukraine is better. And I think if we're going to just look at this in terms of, you know, who, who's better, even though they're not, uh, you know, having perfectly clean hands. Um, I, I'm for Ukraine and, and I absolutely want to help Ukraine, um, you know, move to the point where it's it is a greater democracy. And, and again, uh, you can't look at what's happening to the Ukrainian people and not immediately feel for them and want to help them. I am not suggesting not helping them. But I'm saying is we have to be smart about how we help them. And Washington seems to be falling into the same old ways, which is send in the Pentagon and push the State Department aside. Yeah, Yeah. proxy wars and all kinds of stuff that they they like to do over there at the Pentagon. It's kind of interesting to me that you say that you've, you know, been back to Europe and they're in a panic. And there are a lot of people that go, well, how did we get here? Well, Donald Trump was warning a long time ago, you know, to the Europeans saying, you cannot be dependent on Russian oil like this. It's not going to make us safer. Uh, and he was trying to figure out ways that we could probably provide that. And that would have weakened Putin because he wouldn't have had all that money coming to him. Talk to me a little bit about what the Trump team would do in this situation, diplomatically speaking. Well, you know, I always start uh, when I get asked this question, I always start by saying I'm pissed off that we're in the position of terrible and really terrible choices. Agreed. Right. right. Um, <laughs> yeah, we weren't and, we wouldn't be in this situation with Trump. But let's yeah. say Trump inherited this. Yeah. Well, first of all, let, let's start with uh, a little piece of good news in that the new German government under Olaf Scholz has dramatically changed the German policy. And by every calculation, even though the media are not saying this and they should start saying this, it is an admittance that Merkel was wrong and Trump was right. For the socialist government to come in and immediately flip the policy. Look, I was there. I heard every excuse in the book from Merkel about why they couldn't pay their 2% and why the pipeline was fine. Now, what's interesting is that she? The, she so, has the, Rick, just quickly, is that changing because they've seen the light, or as the, the people in Germany are they actually pushing the leaders to go? Listen, this is crazy. We have to change course. What's who's leading who? The people or the politicians? Well, our media did a terrible job of really telling that story. The people 
were, I would say, one third of, of Germans actually agreed with Trump. And the other thing that our media and our official Washington makes a mistake in is that they they classify what Berlin and Paris does as what the position of Europe is. And that's not true. Mm. Berlin and Paris don't represent Europe as much as they think they do. Uh, if you listen to the European Parliament, the European Parliament actually passed a resolution saying don't build Nord Stream 2. It's not good for for Europe that, you know, the CNNs of the world didn't even notice when that happened because they they were so enamored with Merkel that they just let her decide all of the European policy. But the Germans um, are, are struggling uh, to control Europe right now because people, uh, the rest of the EU are, are biting back. Let's remember that under Merkel, under the 16 years of Merkel, the EU shrank with Brexit. The uh, borders of Europe were rewritten twice by Putin, once in, in Crimea and, and now with his invasion in Ukraine. Merkelism did not work. Mm -hmm. Merkelism was not a strong policy towards Europe, it was an economic policy for Germany. And boy, did that work. They mm -hmm. have a lot of money and they have a lot of uh, car sales around the world. But it's made Europe less safe. And right. Europeans are now waking up to that. And so for Olaf Scholz, who was the finance minister for, for Chancellor Merkel, and I got to know him pretty well, uh, to come in and the socialists take over and they flip the policy of the conservative party. Think about that. It was yeah. the conservatives that didn't want to do the the two percent and wanted to get the Russian pipeline. And the socialists flipped that. That 180 is unbelievable. And Joe Biden and Senate Democrats haven't embraced the reality of yes. what has flipped in Germany. Yes. You know, it's so interesting. Cause they say only two. They, on, they only had to get to two percent. I'm wondering, like, I feel like the Europeans are like those people who you go to dinner with and the bill comes and they go to the bathroom like what? This is their continent. Why is there? Why are they only paying two percent? For their, they're for, not paying. 2%, they're not. They're, they're not even there. paying that, yeah. and they're bitching about yeah. that. And they should be paying a lot more. And now, hopefully, yeah. hopefully that will happen. Now, here's here's what I have found interesting. Can I just add one? Yeah, quick sure. Thing go to for that, it. Though, because it's really important to note that you know organizations like the German Marshall Fund and all of these transatlantic groups really made excuses for the Germans and for Merkel. They allowed her to move away. And this is what I say, and this is an intellectual point, but it's an important point. Merkel moved the transatlantic alliance away from the West, away from a Western-facing alliance, and she just made it a, a kind of boring alliance. We're, in a, we're not Western-facing. We don't value democracy, human rights, and the rule of law anymore. We're just going to be in partnership. So she did that. And the German Marshall Fund, all of these transatlantic groups let her do that. And they made Europe less safe, even though they issued a lot of white papers about it. Yeah, that's a that's a very interesting point. Wait right there. We'll have more of this conversation next. Did you know that every major diaper company either financially or vocally supports abortion? If that appalls you and you're looking to support a baby brand that aligns with your pro-life, pro-family views, then every life is your solution. Every life firmly believes that regardless of where someone is from, 
what they look like, or whether they were planned or unplanned. Every baby is a miracle from God, worthy of love, protection, and celebration. Every Life offers high-performing, supremely soft, premium diapers and wipes delivered right to your doorstep. Their diapers are crafted without fragrances, dyes, lotions, latex, parabens, or phthalates. And you can feel good knowing that every purchase with Every Life contributes to changing lives through their support of pro-life organizations and pregnancy resource centers. Every Life is not just changing diapers, they're changing lives. Visit everylife.com to learn more. That's everylife.com. And don't forget to use promo code Duffy10 for an exclusive 10% discount on your first order today. So here we are in this situation, and I'm going to tell you how I feel. I am concerned. Put your seatbelt on, Rick. (laughs) (laughs) So I was one of those people that during the Iraq war, I bought into the whole thing, right? I was like... Weapons of mass destruction. Well, well, until it was proven that they weren't there. But I, I believed that... You know, I, I trusted George Bush. I trusted trusted our government. Me too. The I, intel community. We trusted I remember them. pushing back on all the peaceniks on it, and we have to fight for freedom and blah blah blah. And I actually believed that maybe these countries wanted some sort of you know Western form we'll be democracy. Welcome with American flags and roses. Gonna... I bought all of it, and then I got egg on my face, and so I was angry about that. And one of the reasons I liked Trump was he was one of the Republicans to very openly embrace and proudly say that was crap what we got sold that was a stupid war we shouldn't have done it and when he said it i mean it was like you know it was sending shockwaves to the republican party it gave all of us permission to say what we all thought and have this debate in our party which i think has been really healthy for this party and yeah, then it's been so healthy and then the pandemic came oh, then the pandemic or first Russia hoax, and I saw our intelligence community lie and destroy lo- lives. Um, tell me that Hunter Biden's laptop was was Russian disinformation when it was totally true. Um, continue to cover for the Bidens and all their you know dirty deals all over. By the way, Russia, China, Ukraine, and then this whole pandemic. I was lied to from top to bottom from all these government bureaucracies. So now. When they tell me, oh, and then they, they tell me that, you know, I should be really concerned about this because of freedom and Biden's so concerned about freedom and border integrities. I see what's happening at the border in, in our southern border. And then I see that he told Justin Trudeau to crush the truckers. I see all of this stuff going on. And I'm like, I don't believe these people anymore. They don't have any of my trust. And then at the same time, I'm worried about a nuclear war because now I have nine kids. I have two young boys um, as well. And I have just not been able to get on board with this. I, I feel very suspicious. So I have to say, you know, and not that I don't feel I, bad for the Ukrainians. I see the images. You of see course, too. Of course. I, you, I can have hold those two thoughts at the same time. Of course. I, I'm just sitting here thinking the reason I fell in love with Rachel on MTV so long ago <laughs> was because I I saw a little bit of me and you and and you guys what I love <laughs> what I what I love now I'm in California and so far away on this call like 20 plus years later you and I have actually migrated together our worldview is exactly the same in terms of I was with you, Rachel. I was that person who was at the U.N. I I was employed as the American spokesman at the U.N. to defend Iraq and Afghanistan Mm -hmm. and weapons. I was there inside the Security Council. I was the American talking about the bio labs 
and all of the weapons of mass destruction. And, and so what I learned is this, is that intelligence is an estimate. And I assumed early in my career that intelligence was an absolute. And what I've learned now is that policymakers have to question intelligence. They have, you know, one of the things that irked me the most when I became acting director of national intelligence is the, the chorus of, of the left saying, he's unqualified. He's never worked in an intel agency. And I thought, you know, my first intelligence briefing was in 2001. <laughs> I've had 20 years of receiving intelligence and using it. Who better to lead the intelligence agencies than the ones who know how to consume it and how yeah. it's used? Agreed. And so I, I am now really skeptical of the intelligence because of what you laid out in Iraq and Afghanistan and the truckers and Russian collusion and all of the, the lies. But what I've realized is that, and this is an important point for the audience, the majority of our intelligence officers are good people who do not want to be taken out of context. And when properly looked at all of their information, they do give caveats and warnings. The media dumb it down and partisans on both sides will selectively leak intelligence to serve their own purposes. That's what we have to stop because the majority of our intelligence officers are doing what we want them to do, which is we see this, but I don't know about that. And then this contradicts it. And so there is an assessment that goes on from them that is in the gray area. And it's an estimate, not an absolute. But we on the outside are pretending like the government and especially intelligence agencies live in a world of absolutism. And that's just a manipulation that the politicians are doing to us. It, it, it doesn't exist. And so, you know, when I look at this uh, too, Rick, I, I when I was in Congress, I felt like I got really good information and probably not as good as you did, but I got good information. Um, and you hear a debate that's happening right now about what did Trump do with Ukraine? How much money in regard to assets and missiles did he give? Goes back to the impeachment phone call, right? What did Trump give? And then we flip on January 20th, 20th to Joe Biden, and I believe he gave $120 million worth of, of armaments, $20 million last summer and $100 million in November as massive troops were on the border. What did Trump provide to the to the Ukrainians um, during the four years? Well, this is an interesting conversation because um, what what President Trump was trying to do is deal, deal in the reality of, of Ukraine, which um, we've given a lot of aid over 20 years to Ukraine. And uh, a lot of it has been misused. The corruption is rampant. And we've seen a lot of reports where our aid or uh, what we provide is wasted or goes into the hands of elites. And what President Trump was trying to do is to say, look, I want to make sure that this aid is actually going to be utilized and we should be able to put strings on our aid. It's our money mm -hmm. and we'll be able to say, this is what we want to, to fund or this is what we want to help with. And that's what President Trump was trying to do. But he was focused on arming the Ukrainians and the Ukraine government with substantive hardware, not with blankets, not with the extra stuff, <laughs> but to sell hardware. And I've been in the Oval Office where President Trump would say, look, 
it's one of the exports that we can do. We can help our economy by selling other countries uh, weaponry. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. That is part of an America first strategy. I think that we should be selling the Ukrainians what they ask for. I don't believe that there's much of a distinction between a javelin and, a, you know, a fighter jet in terms of escalation. Right. I agree. I think, I, I think you know, provide what they want, um, even doing training. But but I don't want to shove the Europeans aside. And, the, and as Rachel rightly pointed out, you know, when the check comes, they usually go to the bathroom. And so what's going to happen is they are not going to step up and provide anything uh, unless the Americans are hesitating and saying, you know, let's do Europe first. Let's patrol your own uh, areas. That was part of the Trump philosophy, whether it's in Africa with Somalia and Kenya to say, you know, we're going to bring our troops home. Yes, there's a crisis in Somalia, but where's Kenya? Why don't you patrol your neighborhood? And that philosophy is something that I believe in uh, and and think that we've got to have more of. Yeah. And that also goes for the migration. I'm so sick and tired of like there's like some, you know, look at what happened in Afghanistan and like where are all the Middle Eastern countries? Those people we've had Douglas Murray on this morning and and also um, last weekend. He, you know, studied a lot of this sort of refugee and migration stuff. And he's like all the studies show that the migrants do better, the refugees do better when they're near their near their own countries. You've said that too, Rick. So that's another yeah, example. Yeah, they, they want to be. Yeah, they want. So they can there. get back. They want to be there. Right, so they can get back. And, and then it seems like there's all these politicians here who have some political incentive to bring them here because they think they might be future voters. It's just there's so much dishonesty and, and there's so much money that's being wasted. And I see it all and it just makes me sick. But, but even on that point, Rick, like I watch the news. And we'll we'll hear about, you know, a, a conflict between an American and um, a checkpoint or someone. And there was a, there was a video from Sky News from a, from about 10 days ago. And even the reporters were like, we don't know where this who was shooting at us. They didn't go check their IDs. They don't know who the actual shooters were. But obviously, we assumed it was Russians, not Ukrainians. But I, I mean, I think that it's important that we also go, what truly are the facts so we yeah. can actually accurately tell the American people when everyone says the same thing, that's when I get concerned when there's like group think Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives, everyone is group thinking this. That's when alarm bells uh, yeah. go, go that's off. A, that's a good red flag moment. Yeah, yeah I agree a, with you. We should probably go, hmm, maybe there's something else going on here. And so, um, yeah, I, I don't know what you think about that, but because I, I think there's just a, a lot of a lot of information that's being fed to us. And again, seeking the truth. And, and what I also want to look at as a as a former elected official is what mistakes were made. What could have been done earlier to not have brought us to this point? And I mean, yeah. as Rachel and I have talked about it, I thought, well, maybe we should have taken NATO off the table. Um, maybe was it a memo of understanding, Rick, in, in November that Biden gave the Ukrainians that brought them one step closer to, um, to, 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 to NATO? And also, maybe we should have armed Ukraine to the teeth. If we could have done it the, the Trump way, make sure that they're they're actually going to go to you know you know missiles and drones as opposed to um, you know patting the pockets of corrupt politicians. Yeah, I uh, I'm going to say something that somebody will pull later on um, in a future confirmation <laughs> for me and be like, see how dishonest <laughs> he is. But but we're talking about reality. We're talking about living in the real world, and and uh, and I'm going to say this as a as a someone who is no longer in the U.S. government, right? Um, I've sat in 
thousands of diplomatic meetings. And the reality is, and this I'm just talking about the reality, um, sometimes when you're in a private meeting, you can say something and then you don't say the same thing publicly. <laughs> if you get my drift right. here, when talking about NATO membership, there is a way to communicate uh, what the reality is of, of a future membership. And, and you can say one thing privately and then, uh, look, I, I, the rule for me is, is I, I wouldn't publicly say that a country can't seek NATO membership. But I also have been saying publicly on NATO membership that we shouldn't be talking about adding any new NATO members when the current ones aren't paying their fair share. Yes. <laughs> but also, I mean, but, but Rick, I, this, Rachel and I had this conversation as well. I mean, if, if you're if you're Putin and he's made this clear, he's like, if if NATO goes to Ukraine, right, if they're, they're, they're members if, yeah. and, you know, you bring in Western armaments, maybe Western missiles, obviously that's on my doorstep. And we all agree so with self-determination, but if I go a diplomatic meeting in that diplomatic meeting, when he says that there are responses that you can make that you wouldn't say publicly. Well, right. Cause I look at it, go, well, we had a Cuban missile crisis over Russia trying to put missiles in Cuba right on our doorstep. I mean, people get pretty sensitive and I don't want to defend Putin, but I'm like, people get sensitive about, you know, perceived enemies putting, you know, missiles or armaments right on their border. Right. I mean, we did. So nobody's. Stick, uh, the stick it in the eye of Putin. Well, I shouldn't yeah. say no, but I certainly don't. Um, the man's got nuclear weapons. Right. And right. We've got to be very smart. Um, and this is what I loved about, you know, President Trump. I, I was in the Oval Office when he was putting tough sanctions on Putin and he would say, look, I'm still going to try to be his friend because I'm going to try to get him to understand that the sanctions are to try to change behavior. If you change behavior, then we can have a different relationship with you. But you, you know, you have to articulate that to, to, to the, the leaders. You can't just pretend like they're going to guess as to what our policy is because we put sanctions on them. No, talk to them. Tell them this is why we're putting sanctions on. And, and by the way, if your behavior changes, you can have a different relationship. We'll be right back with much more after this. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. So we've talked to a lot of generals um, over the last couple of weeks on on Fox and Friends weekend. I've been hosting all week here on Fox and Friends weekday. And all of the generals at this point are saying that the next 10 days are going to be critical. What do you see happening? How do you think this plays out? And, and, and does it come to a peaceful conclusion? You know, I'm a diplomat, so I'm probably not the right person to talk no, to. I'm, but of, I'm not asking like, you to give me a, a military, military assessment, Rick. I'm just give me your assessment of how this, not how it plays out on the battlefield, but the geopolitical, what happens here? Does, yeah. you know, who wins? Think, is there an, is there a deal to be made? I, I've been praying for, for, for a peaceful resolution. I think Putin has already met some of his goals of dividing um, 
NATO and and making moves. He's in over his head in terms of what he thought he could do to finish the job. Um, I fear that they're going to uh, that that Putin is not going to stop until he takes out Zelensky, um, and therefore create enough political chaos to install a more friendly government for him. Why do and, you say that NATO is is because you know the, what you hear all the time from the experts is that NATO is stronger than ever that they are all all united as you said many countries who were maybe even ambivalent about joining NATO are now like hey I want to be part of this. Um, why, why do well, you say no they, rush, they rush to NATO? They rush under the umbrella of NATO when there's a crisis and Europe is in crisis. And I don't think Americans understand that the Europeans are afraid right now. I mean, my friends in Berlin are talking uh, literally like this is uh, about the Berlin airlift. Is that, is that how, because they have PTSD from World War II? It's like they still have that that memory so, still so fresh for them. Or do you really believe they are in danger? I think it's a little of both. I think there's no question that it's on their doorstep. I mean, as soon as you you get Poland involved and the and three million refugees going into Poland, you know, that immediately sends the message to Germany because that's their neighbor, that they're right there. And so I think that the Europeans need to be pushed. We shouldn't rush into um, being the military, military leader um, even the financial leader, when y- this is a European problem, and I'm not suggesting that we don't do anything. I am suggesting that we are smarter to not shove the Europeans aside, rush in and take control of the situation. Part of my job as a diplomat is to get our allies to do more. And when there's a crisis in Europe, the Europeans need to be the leader. 100%. I agree with that. Do you think that there is real danger of, I mean, I was on air when we had a potential nuclear, you know, they said there was a nuclear alert. I mean, I, I kind of freaked out. Any danger of that? Or, or do you think with yeah. Putin, do you think that's real? You know, I think it's very real because he's a madman now. Something flipped. If you look at his speech, he's not the Putin of old. He didn't have rational arguments. He's lashing out. He's like a wounded animal and wounded animals do crazy things. That's what Sean says. Yeah. And that's why you always have to give people an out. And that's why you're a diplomatic side, but let people say face, give them, give them an out. You never want to, you never want to corner an animal that has nuclear weapons. That's a, that's a, that's a bad outcome. And so how do you, and maybe that's, and that's, that's why, and Rachel has commented, why is, and maybe we don't see this, Rick, but the diplomatic side of this, are Putin and Biden talking, how, what kind of engagement are we having with Russia? It doesn't look like there well, is. That might be an important conversation to have to make sure that we don't escalate this where, you know, people well, misread things. Biden, Biden announced yesterday that he was going to go to NATO in nine days. Nine days. I know. I know. <laughs> Think about that. I'm going to go to NATO in nine days. Putin's like, great, I've got nine days. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's so th- true. This, is, this is so outrageous for me to see Anthony Blinken sitting in Washington, D.C., you know, he did some event yesterday on honoring women and equality and equity. And while those issues may be important right now, I think his priority is to get on a plane and to be all over European capitals, asking the Europeans what they are going to do about a crisis in Europe. And he should be on that plane in Paris and Berlin and Warsaw why is he in Washington, D.C.? If, if we want to talk about America leading, 
We right. should not be talking about a no-fly zone when Anthony Blinken is sitting in Washington, D.C. when there's a crisis in Europe. Get on a plane and start talking. And it's interesting. They, they, the, the, the Biden administration wants to sell all of us on how great Biden has, is doing, leading the world and leading NATO and bringing people together. But to your point, if you were that leader, you would be on Air Force One going over, not nine days from now, but going over today. Right. And Blinken would be on a plane. He, he wouldn't be home. He would have been gone for the last two weeks and have no plan, plan on coming home because he's engaging the world, leading. And again, Especially- so I think they're selling us on one version of leadership. But the reality is, to your point, they're sitting yes. at their desks in Washington. But it's, it's this is a critical moment. It's not just that Zelensky, you know, was just giving a speech to Carnage, but in the last day we had, you know, Zelensky on camera saying, I'm not going to pursue, you know, I'm, we're not going to pursue NATO. Um, there were some real concessions. There's some real hope. There's peace negotiations going Russian on right now. 12 miles away from Poland. Right, but there, mean, this is a critical moment, but also a critical moment in the potential for peace. Okay. And so that that America wouldn't lead in that diplomatic effort to bring a closure to this war. I, I feel like either they don't they don't understand that diplomacy is part of the job or they may be like that, you know, they think maybe, and I've heard, I've heard people say, I've heard Hillary Clinton say this, this will bleed them dry. We'll have this little, you know, have them keep fighting in, in, in Ukraine and, and this will weaken Russia. Is that even a, is our that- government, our government is big enough to be able to do more than one thing. And for, for me as a diplomat, 11 years at the state department, I want to do diplomacy and let the military and the Pentagon people come yes. up with options. The president then gets to decide when to stop doing diplomacy, and when to transfer the file over to the Pentagon. But if I were Secretary of State, I would have the plane in Kiev. I would go and I would, I would bring in European leaders and I would have a meeting in Kiev. There is no possible way that the Russians are going to risk bombing the U.S. Secretary of State and mm-hmm. European. We have three European leaders who decided to do that. But guess yep. what? Anthony Blinken, Blinken was in Washington, D.C. Sometimes well, when I European see... leaders were going into Ukraine. It's outrageous that we've shoved diplomacy aside and we've just decided, official Washington has decided Anthony Blinken is so weak that we're just going to let him sit in Washington, D.C. Sometimes I see Anthony Blinken and he looks scared to me. Like he looks like he's not confident in his role. Like he, do you get that sense? Yes, yes. And by the way, everybody, uh, I know so many foreign service officers, career officials at the State Department who every single day tell me, I fear that the State Department is literally circling the drain. There's no talk of diplomacy. I had a reporter who has covered uh, the State Department for 10 years who is not a Trump fan, who is not a conservative, say to me yesterday, why are you even talking about Anthony Blinken? He is totally irrelevant to this. Mm-hmm. And I said, isn't that a problem? Right. <laughs> Don't you think that, that because we've dismissed Anthony Blinken and we're, that even the press corps is like, oh, we shouldn't worry about the Secretary of State because he's really irrelevant to this whole situation. That burns me. I don't want to dismiss the State Department like that. No, not in a situation like this where, you know, if it, if it goes to a military solution it will be it's dangerous and this is one of these times where 
you're really glad you have a state department and you want your state department to take a lead and, and give great options to the White House and, and really bring about peace. I tell you, Rick, I feel like I'm becoming a, a peacenik. Um, I've, I've turned, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm the Republican Cindy Sheehan now. I feel like I just want to give, I just want to give peace a chance. I just think this is kind of scary. I have to tell you, it, it's, it's so great having you on. I'm so grateful that you would make time. Um, for Sean and I to, to do our podcast. I hope we have you back. There's no one better on this topic um, than you. You're on Newsmax now. Tell tell our viewers how else they can see you. Well, I, if they come to Los Angeles, they can see me. But I, I'm on <laughs> Newsmax and uh, traveling the country, actually helping out a lot of our Senate and House candidates. Um, I, can I just give one a shout out? Do you know Jesse Jensen in running for Congress in Seattle? Because the the reality is is that uh, Jesse ran last time and can win. Just needs a little Wait, help. What area is this? Seattle, and he's he's a really great guy. He's a vet. Uh, he served in uh, I can't remember if it's Iraq or Afghanistan, but he he's a great guy. Check him out, Jesse Jensen, uh, in the state of Washington. You know, a lot of people concentrate on East Coast and Midwestern candidates and they forget about the West. And that, so I like to sometimes we forget they can, they can actually win out West. They can yes. actually win out West. That's awesome. So when are you heading over to Europe? I will be there for the elections in Serbia are April 3rd. So I'll head over April 1st. So when you go to Serbia to do something like that, you're just, you're just going as an observer. You just want to see how it all goes down. Yeah. I really care about the Balkans. Um, I, I don't think anyone in the Biden administration is doing much on the Balkans and the Trump administration had such success uh, negotiating for economic agreements. The people of the Balkans love President Trump and, and America. And uh, awesome. it's important to be an election observer. And uh, Serbia is a country that we need to continue pushing to a better relationship with uh, America. Well, Rick, I, I can't thank you enough. I, I hope that in the very near future that I know you're helping a lot of candidates around the country. I hope you become one of those candidates. Is that is there a possibility in that? Are you wishing me to run for public office? Mm -hmm. How dare I actually <laughs> I would love one day and, and not just for some state office that I can't vote for in California. My <laughs> my hope is that it will be um, something national that I that one day I will I will vote for Rick Rennell, maybe even oh. president. I'm not kidding. I think you're amazing. I think that um, you were you you you. You're somebody who I think a lot of people in the Republican Party can relate to because you're so common sense. Um, and I know that it wasn't an easy transition um, to go you know, from Bush world to Trump world. Um, and, and it was a very intellectual and thoughtful transition. I think people really relate relate to what you did. Well, thank you so much. Always great to be here. We've enjoyed that conversation. If you did, too, let us know. Subscribe, rate and review this podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. We hope to see you around the kitchen table next week. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.